The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of nutrients and supplements after weight loss surgery. We go deep with nutritionist Jackie Lewis of BN Multi. Jackie opens up about why it's so important that people take supplements after their weight loss surgery. A few things we discuss in this episode include how does weight loss surgery impact our ability to absorb nutrients? Which nutrients are mostly impacted and why we should monitor these with blood tests? How can these deficiencies affect us? We talk about hair loss, iron deficiency anemia, and how we can prevent these issues. How can surgery impact a woman's periods and menstrual cycle? How long should a woman wait until she falls pregnant post-weight loss surgery? What nutrients are important in sperm production? What skin, mouth, eye, nail signs reflect nutrient deficiencies? We talk about these issues and a whole lot more. A bit about Jackie Lewis. She is the nutritionist and clinical support manager behind BN Multi, an Australian company providing an up-to-date and effective range of bariatric nutritional products. BN Multi's mission is to work together with the post-surgical bariatric community to provide up-to-date education and quality products. I hope you enjoy our chat. Good morning, Jackie Lewis. Good morning, Tash. How are you? <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for chatting to us today. Uh, before we, you know, launched into BN, BN Multi, which I'm very curious about, I wanted to get a sense of you, Jackie Lewis, and what you were doing before you started up BN Multi. In my previous life. In your previous um, life. In my previous life, I was a massage therapist and I was a personal trainer. So oh. I started from pretty much my first job. I used to work in advertising and then I um, was always interested in health and fitness and keeping well. So I lived in Sydney at the time and I studied massage therapy and did all the personal training and um, that sort of thing. And then I ran my own business with personal training and massage for about 20 odd years down there. Had a couple of clinics. I had one in Vaucluse and one in Roselle. And um, in amongst that, I had my son, and that's kind of what kept that going. Was it was quite flexible and easy to run that around the hours of little ones. And then you did some further study. Yes, I did. I did a Bachelor of Health Science in Nutritional and Dietetic Medicine with Endeavour. Oh, that's a great place to study. I've heard. I enjoyed it. I found it absolutely fascinating. The whole. Um, intricate understanding of nutrition and how our bodies work and how health can be optimised through good food and supplementation. So you found a very niche market, uh, the BN Multi. Yeah. Um, before we talk about BN, what nutrients are impacted by weight loss surgery? I know this is a really big topic. And before mm. uh, I started seeing patients who'd had lots of bariatric surgery, I actually had no real awareness of the fact that these people – have to take multis for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, tell us more about what nutrients are impacted by this so surgery. So, yeah, there's, 
there's different ways that nutrients are impacted on. Uh, one of them is absorption. Obviously, the mechanical changes that the surgery imposes on the digestive tract um, limit the absorption of B12, um, calcium, iron and vitamin D predominantly. Uh, they're the ones we see that are affected by malabsorption. Um, and then there's just general malnutrition, which is um, brought about by the surgery, but as well just through the restriction and the limitation on the amount of food that people can eat each day. And this happens to all patients who've had bariatric surgery? That's correct, yes. And it is a lot, It is for life. A lot of um, feedback we get from patients, they tend to understand that it's just a 12-month impact for some reason. Um, and no, it's definitely a lifelong uh, implication of the surgery. Over the years, I've I've seen people come, you know, to my practice, and what I've noticed is this is post bariatric patients. They've uh, either not been taking multis, or they're taking kind of over the counter, run of the mill stuff. Yeah. But I understand that run of the mill over the counter is not best for bariatric patients. So before yes. BN Multi came along, what multis were being used for these patients? That's exactly right. So before there were a certain uh, specific supplementation for weight loss surgery patients, a lot of the dietitians were prescribing things like pregnancy multivitamins um, and just, a, yeah, just general multis off the shelf. And then if there were deficiencies, they would kind of have to kind of deal with those in a reactive way. So the patient would take the standard multi and run out of iron and run out of B12 and either end up with um, iron infusions or B12 injections and all this kind of extra work in catching up on those deficiencies while sort of as they happen rather than prevention. So why is there that gap? I would have thought that dietitians would have been taught more about this at, at university. What, what, I don't understand that. Yeah, I can tell you I'm not totally clear. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of extra learning that needs to be done when you specialise in this particular area. And I think also people generally or practitioners sometimes underestimate the effects of this surgery on the way the body works. So if they're not really studying in that niche area and they have a you know, one in 10 patients might be a bariatric patient. It's not their specialty. They may just look over things that, you know, most other practitioners who are seeing it all the time get to recognise it. Mm. And obviously there are key areas uh, that their supplements have to cover post-surgery. So you've got bone density, you've got the, you know, blood, energy, immune system, nervous system, muscle tissue. Can you talk yeah. more on, on those specific areas? Yeah, so a lot of those, like the red blood cell formation or healthy blood cells overall, white and red, are very reliant on the B12 and the iron to begin with. So um, there have been cases that we've seen where nutritional deficiency has reached such a state that particularly B12 is quite dangerous. Um, if a patient has a lot of vomiting and they're not eating enough food, they can become deficient in niacin. Um, and that will present over the long term the same as it does in alcoholics with um, brain damage, neurological damage. Um, so the B group really um, govern 
the, the healthy nervous system and protect your brain. Um, so when these nutrients do become sort of in that deficient state, there are certainly risks of um, long-term and sometimes irreversible damage. And how about bone? What, what, so bones what, what part lot- of your supplements are important for bone density in these patients? Yeah, so the way we formulated our supplements, Tash, was based on the ASMBS um, weight loss surgery guidelines. So they did a study on about 40,000 people who um, had had weight loss surgery and they tracked their nutritional deficiencies. And from that, they um, made a recommendation of a daily uh, recommended intake of these nutrients that do fall short after surgery. So what you'll find in our formulation is the extrapolation of that research. So it is like a security blanket to make sure that um, these problems don't arise over the longer term. So from a bone density point of view, um, we have calcium in our chewable multivitamins and we also have our own chewable calcium supplement to go with the capsules. Um, and the vitamin D dosage in our formulation is a thousand IU. So that's um, every day. And that's been found to prevent that sort of bone density issues. And calcium is a key nutrient in weight loss. So I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's very important to um, keep up the calcium intake. The reason calcium is not well absorbed is because the surgery leaves the patient with low stomach acid. So Essentially, calcium and iron are reliant on acid for absorption. So that's why this ongoing deficiency can take place because the um, anatomical changes that take place from the surgery. You mentioned earlier chewable uh, options and capsules. Yeah. Why the difference? I mean, I know some people have difficulty swallowing capsules and hence maybe choose it better, but is that because of the restrictive nature of the surgery and people not being able to really physically keep things down? Yeah, the initial um, we recommend, and it is recommended for about the first three months after surgery, that the patients take a chewable multivitamin. And that's because the body's still healing. And in that period specifically, stomach acid is really scant. So we like to make sure that um, the body has been able to assimilate those nutrients in the correct part of the digestive tract. So if you pop a capsule in, we, there's not a guarantee in that early stage of where those nutrients will get delivered. So if the capsule stays intact for too long through the digestive tract, um, there's an opportunity missed there for absorbing those nutrients. And how about the immune system? What, uh, what micronutrients are important for our immune system that yeah. we need to discuss? Yeah. That's a key um, question lately, of course, with everything that's been happening. Mm. Um, So overall, making sure your blood cells are forming in a healthy way is the key to maintaining immunity. So when uh, B12 or B group overall are falling short, you can expect that there'll be impacts on the immune system as well. Um, vitamin C is a big one. There have been cases of scurvy in weight loss surgery patients, which is pretty unheard of in our times. Um, and also iron. So iron deficiency anemia affects about 48% of patients within the first year after surgery. And um, that also has a massive impact on the immune system overall and mental health. So there's a real balance between pretty much the Bs and the iron and um, patient's level of anxiety and depression and that sort of thing as well. So 
it is a really multifaceted um, and fairly preventative way of just maintaining that um, mental and emotional health after surgery as well. And how about zinc? Yeah, zinc's very important for your immune system, isn't it? <laughs> and um, and for hair. So there are, there are different um, nutrients that will also affect their hair um, and they are generally B, iron, copper and zinc. So you can see over over and above, you know, the different um, areas we're talking about, you can just see the far-reaching effects that this balance is required to be maintained to make sure everything's working well. With the hair loss, that's a big issue in the bariatric community, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big issue. Um, and it's one that patients go into surgery quite concerned about. Um, we've got a fantastic article on um research into hair loss in the bariatric patient and the, it's really shown that um, the key nutrients for maintaining healthy hair are again b12 iron copper zinc um, and protein so um, all of those ducts really need to be in a row to maintain healthy hair production and when does this hair loss actually occur post-surgery well, it can be in the early stages. So the research shows that um, hair loss in the first six months may be expected, and that's just um, a result of the shock of the surgery and the changes that are going on in the body. Um, but they've said that anything that's presenting in that um, after six-month period is attributed to nutritional deficiency. And are there any patients that are a particular risk of um of that of of hair loss. hair loss yeah so i think it's affecting more women than it is men which is interesting and it would concern um, more women i would think but you know guys can yeah. be concerned about hair loss too can't they yeah i think so too mm. i think it's above the board i do hear more women discussing it in our groups and um in the forums online um i think it's also maybe it's more noticeable in women when they've had you know long and glossy hair all their life and then it starts falling out and some people report it's coming out in handfuls while they're showering and they just get afraid to wash their hair because it's just coming out in such um amounts for quite a period of time i understand protein's really important and uh if if they're low in protein that can also contribute to hair loss yeah absolutely um that's a, and it i look also at um even if they're putting in, you know, enough supplementation every day and they're meeting their protein targets, essential fats are very important also. So fish oil and avocado and uh, olive oil in your cooking and that sort of thing um, are key also to glossy, healthy hair and nails. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It's um, something that we um, we do hear quite a lot about in the – and it is, it is some of it's preventable – um, but looking at when that kind of nutritional needs are being met, I look then at malabsorption, so um, gut health and um, stimulating a bit more stomach acid to make sure they're really breaking down protein and able to use that um, processed uh, amino acids from the protein as well. How do you go about stimulating acids in the stomach? Ah, um, we look at um, enzymatic activity. And also, yeah, helping the body to form just a little bit more acid. So things like um, under guidance, I would never recommend anyone tries it on their own. Um, we do use B-group vitamins, um, some zinc, and also in some cases we've seen that apple cider vinegar sometimes helps just to keep that digestive process activated as well. 
um, it is something that really should be done um, with the support of your practitioner. So apple cider vinegar, uh, lots of people take that for various reasons, and but specifically yeah. for these patients, how do you recommend they, they take it? You could do a very small dose to start with, always dilute it in some warm water. Um, and we usually recommend that's at the very start of the day, so it's the first thing that goes in. Um, it's also something that I would say for sort of three to six months after surgery just to make sure that we're not upsetting anything else. Um, so it is something that, um, yeah, that's why I'm recommending to do it under guidance if you start doing it because it uh, can be can be very fantastic or it can be quite um, have some other impacts that you don't want. <laughs> I noticed on your website that you've got a product. It's a protein water. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, yes. Can you um, talk, yeah, that's I yeah, found that interesting to see because I've taken lots of protein over the years with running, et cetera, but yeah. uh, I've never noticed a protein water on the market. Yeah, it is an interesting product. And the, the, the beauty of that, I think, is at the very beginning when patients come home from hospital, they've got to meet their protein needs. They need to take enough liquid, um, but they can't eat anything solid. So it's a really, um, in that period of time, it's actually a really good way of getting in the protein as well as hydration at the same time. And um, the other one that's very popular is the tasteless collagen powder. And that's really popular because it's just so versatile. It's completely tasteless and completely soluble. So you can add sort of 10 or 20 grams of protein to a glass of water if you if that's what you need to do. Um, quite often I put it in tea and coffee and just to, if I've had a busy day and haven't sort of met my protein needs, that's where it goes for me. It's um yeah, it's got a lot of benefits for the gut and the skin and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, all round, I think that's um, it's a very popular product for that reason. The collagen? Yeah. Mm. And the other thing is blood tests. So these patients obviously are fully worked up before they have the surgery, so they've had numerous blood tests before surgery. Yeah. Then following surgery, what should they be doing regarding blood tests? Yeah, it's, it's important to remember that it is for life, these uh, regular blood tests. Um, initially, when they're, I think the first 12 months is that period of time where patients are taken into care and they're closely monitored. And I get the feeling that maybe that's why at the end of the 12 months, a lot of them are under the impression that they're kind of off the hook for <laughs> um, blood tests and regular appointments with dietitians and that sort of thing. Um, and maybe they don't need their multivitamin anymore, but that's actually when they start to really need to take responsibility of their own um, and follow up on blood tests every initially every three months and then every six months um, forever to make sure that everything's tracking along. And that's a more preventative approach to health. I think it's something that we're not necessarily all familiar with as we're growing up. Let's get your blood test done so that we can make sure everything's going to be okay in the next six months. So um, it is a new kind of concept for a lot of patients. Um, but it helps your practitioners to see whether anything's changing. And um, if you're as proactive as you'd like to be around your health after surgery, it's also a good um, indicator for you if you're looking at your previous results compared to the current ones. We've got a fantastic guide on our website that has um, a really comprehensive list of what they're looking for and um, the reasons why that, that needs to be checked on a regular basis as well. 
I've seen that and I've incorporated that into my uh, history taking for patients. So, yeah, very, very, uh, very useful because, you know, the scary thing is, is that I will see couples or women wanting to get pregnant after bariatric surgery and they're not on any supplements. Wow. And uh, knowing this kind of freaks me out a little bit because (laughs) I realize how important it is for us to actually do these blood tests because they're growing a baby. That's uh, right. and the fact that the routine run-of-the-mill pregnancy multivitamin is just not going to cut it, no, um, you know, says a lot. So if I was to see a woman who fell pregnant within a year of having had surgery, because we know that's not generally encouraged, that's we generally right. recommend, well, I know, I know that you guys recommend 12 to 18 months Absolutely. post-surgery. So if she was to see me and uh, she is not uh, on a multivitamin when she's fallen pregnant, what should I do for that woman? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, it's, yeah, looking at doing that comprehensive set of nutritional bloods um, and also looking at what that woman's demands will be in the next nine months. So um, anything that's in shortfall in the pregnant mother's body um, will be sacrificed at the expense of the child's development. So it may or may not affect the development of the baby, but will definitely have far-reaching effects on the recovery and vitality of the pregnant woman who's trying to, you know, give up everything she has to give life to this other child. Um, so there are certainly different um, levels of um, supplementation that need to be incorporated. And just a really close monitoring, I think, of pregnant women who've had surgery. And I don't know if that's estimated enough. I don't know if it's um, highlighted enough that your needs and demands goes up exponentially during pregnancy and you're flat out meeting your own needs after surgery, that how would you, unless you've really got a robust diet and supplementation regime I'm just not sure how it would come off and we have seen some women who've gotten sort of halfway through a pregnancy and the baby's been failure to thrive in utero because of the nutritional deficiencies that are there for her at that time. Mm. And a lot of these women do actually go through the surgery so that they can lose enough weight to then be able to conceive to either, you know, resume normal ovulation or to enable them to have IVF treatment if they need it. Um, Absolutely. How about for the men? So say a a couple comes along, uh, they've both had bariatric surgery, he has a low semen analysis Mm. Uh, how do we approach the man? Same way? Oh, yeah, same way. And looking at the nutrients that help to make the male reproductive system work. So zinc, B group, um, specifically zinc and B group, um, help to form testosterone. And the Bs make a lot of the hormones in the body, as well as the neurotransmitters for the brain. So there's a lot of reliance on that kind of um, I and B group zinc for the men specifically as well. Um, but, yeah, it's exactly right. I think we look at the woman's body who's, you know, designated driver for that period of time mm. <laughs> and uh, forget about what it takes to make, you know, a man remain fertile and and even to produce healthy, um, robust sperm that's going to create a healthy baby. And how about iron deficiency and weight loss surgery? Can you talk more on that? Because that's very common, as you mentioned earlier, but given the fact yeah. that so many women 
have periods every month and then a lot of them are iron deficient because their periods are so heavy and when women are overweight they tend to have heavier periods. Absolutely. Uh, can you talk it's more that on whole that? Picture. Mm. Yeah, of course. Um, I see a lot of um, what we refer to as estrogen dominance in the women in this community and a lot of the reasons that obesity exists in that um platform is that there's that endocrine dysregulation um, and an over presence of uh, estrogen. So a lot of that polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, um, weird and wacky periods and cycles. So there are a lot of women who are heavy bleeding um, and, and also soon after the surgery, while they're really losing weight at a rapid rate, um, there's excess estrogen that gets stored in fat cells. So they start dumping that into an already um, overloaded, inflamed and high estrogen environment. So the periods can really go quite crazy for that first, um, sometimes about three to six months. Um, a lot of women report that they haven't had a period for like two years beforehand and then slowly they're starting to lose weight and then one day the um, it's just an extremely surprising result. So the, the blood loss can um, very quickly lead to iron deficiency as well, um, which has all other effects on thyroid regulation and energy production and anxiety and sleep and um, overall, it, um, we do see women who've um, really reached that kind of end stage of iron deficiency and they're really not sure what it is. And obviously timing of, of taking these supplements. So my understanding with iron is that if you are going to take a supplement, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it should be not close to caffeine. and Absolutely. Yeah. So do you give specific instructions around when to take these supplements? Yeah, we do. And it's pretty much just as you said, it's um, making sure they're not um, taking iron with caffeine. The other thing to remember with the multis is that particularly in a underactive or a slow and sluggish digestive system, which a lot of surgery patients might have, or that low stomach acid environment, um, if you put in a nice big dose of iron and multivitamin into an empty stomach that's just not ready for digestion, that's when they'll start to feel that nausea. So um, the act of just chewing food and stimulating the brain to let them know that digestion should be taking place and there's food coming in that needs to be assimilated and processed, then put your multivitamin in and the body should be able to recognise that it's you know really easy to, to take that in, whereas yeah, empty stomach's not always very comfortable. <laughs> and in terms of your supplements, uh, patients who are appropriate for them. What I mean by that is I see a lot of patients, women with hair loss, but they're not bariatric patients. Yeah. And and having seen what you guys offer in regards to hair loss, it makes me think, oh, okay, uh, should I be recommending BN Maltese in my patients but who are not bariatric? However, I understand mm. that that might not be a good thing to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, because – these supplements have high doses of certain micronutrients and that might not Correct. be appropriate for everyone? I think, um, Tash, if you are seeing patients who are presenting with that same picture, so I see our supplement would be a great application for celiac disease, um, malabsorptive conditions like um, esophageal cancer and that sort of thing, or um, in the elderly when they're gastric secretions are much lower, these nutrients will become key 
to deficiency as well. Um, for someone who's under your care, who's showing signs of um, similar, you know, malabsorption or malnutrition, you could, um, because you're monitoring them and checking their bloods on a regular basis, it is something that um, if the markers are there in your patient, they've got vitamin B deficiencies and um, their iron is low and that sort of stuff, of course, that would be an application in that um, period of time and always based on the blood test results as well. And also clinically, I think that's important, isn't it? Looking at people's nails, tongues, skin. Do you do that much in your practice? Because I have to say, I think in... In, in general specialty medicine, I'm not talking about GP lane where I'm sure the G, GPs do this all the time, but in the land of the specialists like myself, I think that's overlooked and people yeah. tend to look too much at the blood test, uh, which, you know, might not always be an accurate measure uh, in I that agree. point in time. But can you can you talk to us on skin, for example, and, and looking yeah. at someone's skin, what deficiency we could, uh, you know, understand yeah, could be occurring? There are different, um, oh, some people report like an itchy rash or itchy prickly skin and that can just be all over and it may come with a redness or it might just be a really irritating, itchy feeling. And that can be linked to iron deficiency and also B12. Um, another factor in there for skin is vitamin A. So, you know, when you see someone who's got that kind of bumpy kind of rough skin on the back of their arms, mm. are we, we look at that as a marker for perhaps a vitamin A deficiency as well. And that's a key nutrient in um, weight loss surgery. They're coming up with a lot of, um, particularly bypass, the fat-soluble vitamins are affected by that procedure. But they are seeing, um, the dietitians are seeing and reporting back to us that there's quite a lot of vitamin A deficiency in this group as well. And that's one of the tests that you assess, isn't it, uh, vitamin yes, A? yeah. Yep. It's a good one. Some women are experiencing night blindness like we used to do in the 1950s because their their vitamin A is too low. So um, the other thing I see with that is that, yes, there's a mechanical change to the digestion, but a lot of um, patients are subscribing to a quite a low-fat diet. And um, so on top of malabsorption and no fat, they've just got no vehicle to absorb A, D, E and K. So Always the other reason we take a multi with a meal is that there would be some fat present to help those um, fat-soluble vitamins get shuttled into the body well. Yeah, I always think of the acronym ADEC, check your ADEC, A-D-E-K. Absolutely. Night blindness. So what does that mean? Mm. What, suddenly they can't drive at night or things are are not clear at night? How does someone know that they've got night blindness? Yeah, it's. It is exactly that. It's mm. like if you if you turn the light off um, and you're going between the bathroom and the bedroom and you just simply cannot see um, that. Or it's also the way that your body responds to light change. So if you come from really bright environment outside to going inside and you have trouble with that adaptation to different light, that can also be linked. Um, there's a community of women in Nepal that I saw a big um they were covering and they grow vegetables and that's what they sell to make their money so they were keeping the um the root vegetables for themselves to eat and their families but selling the green leafy vegetables because they're more lucrative so then these poor women were just living on root vegetables and becoming vitamin a deficient so 
I saw footage of them and they had their kids would have to lead them around in the dark to help them to cook dinner and they just literally could not see. And um, there's a doctor over there who's a big player in a great program that goes around to these women and gives them vitamin A supplements. And it is literally an overnight process between being night blind and being able to see once he gives them the correct dosage. It's just incredible. It's interesting how they made that connection, like who who actually made that connection between mm. their symptoms and vitamin A. Just, yeah, exactly. I think it just takes that sort of Western eye to see what's going on because a lot of those things in those far-reaching countries are just accepted, aren't they? It's like now I can see and now I can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they must just think that that's quite a normal process. But the other thing is that they have multiple pregnancies that also deplete their vitamin A. So they've got all these little ones they're trying to feed and they can't see because they've had little ones. <laughs> wow. And how about so, cracks in the corner of your mouth? What deficiency yes. could that represent? It's the B group and iron usually. Um that's a real telltale sign. Anything in the mouth like ulcers or swollen tongue, particularly vitamin B12, when that's deficient, you can have almost a really swollen and sore feeling in the mouth. Um, but, yeah, anything in to do with the mucous membranes like inside of the mouth, the tongue, um, lots of ulcers or cracking at the corners of the mouth are usually to do with the B group and iron. And how about eyes, or the skin around the eyes? Tell us more about that and what's, yeah. what, what that could indicate if, say, you've got sunken eyes, dark circles dark around your circles. eyes. Absolutely, mm. dark circles is generally a sign of a lot to do with iron. Like often women who have that kind of grey and dark circle under the eye can be iron deficiency. To confirm that a lot of the time I'll look at the um, – pull the eyelid down and have a look at the colour of the um, mucous membranes inside and it should be quite a nice fleshy red. And often with an iron deficiency, that'll be kind of a pale, whitey, pinky red. Um, So, yeah, the other thing with under the eyes, if they're puffy and dark, that can be to do with a bit of a stagnation in like digestion and liver function and that sort of thing as well. Good old LFTs. I'm sure that's part of the panel, isn't it? Liver function tests. You can tell a lot from transaminases and when they're elevated. (laughs) We know what you've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) How about the hands and the nails? Yeah, so nails are also a real sign of healthy um, bodily function, basically. I always talk to patients who are discussing these things and if they're – if they're talking about their hair is horrible and their nails are horrible, I refer to those as nice things to have, like it's really nice to have nails and nice to have hair. But um, it tells us that the nutrients that are uh, needed to make those beautiful nails and that lovely hair are busy doing other things just to keep you going. So it's um, they're the need to have. So those nutrients that make healthy nails and healthy hair are either in low supply and they're nowhere or they're in um, low supply and they're busy, you know, keeping your brain functioning or maybe helping your liver to keep going. So that's a real sign that there's something that's not right. Um, Different signs in the nails will show us different things and they're not a definite diagnosis, but they also help us to kind of look down the correct path. So spots on the nails can be linked to like calcium and zinc deficiency. Um, little white spots underneath that aren't from, you know, knocking your hand on something. Um, very rigid or tough nails that are um, quite bumpy and 
course to do with calcium and protein absorption. Um, and then you've got like flat kind of um, spooning. We call it spooning nails where they're not that nice rounded shape. They're actually like a convex or like a bumpy, ridgy look to them. That's to do with iron deficiency as well. So there's a there's a lot we look at. And even when you press on your nail, you can look at how quickly that nail returns back to its normal colour. And that's also a good sign of um, healthy circulation and healthy blood and um, healthy iron supply and B12 and that sort of thing as well. And how about magnesium, my favourite ah, supplement? I love magnesium, don't you? <laughs> Num- numero uno. Yeah, I think so. And I, I yeah, I, I just think I function much better when I've got magnesium on board. Um, so, yeah, it's magnesium's a key in a whole lot of different reactions. Up to 300 different enzymatic reactions in the body rely on magnesium. So um, prevalent for the nervous system, if you're feeling your extra stressed or you're not sleeping very well or um, you've got a bit of anxiety, magnesium will certainly help with that. Um, It's key in liver function, so liver detoxification and um, helping with keeping everything healthy in your enzymatic activity there. And it's also a good um, alkaline agent, so it helps to calm inflammation and um, within the digestive system it's just a real helper for keeping things on that more alkaline level. Throughout my ONG training, uh, we used to use a lot of something called magnesium sulfate in women who had really high blood pressure where you either you had to kind of prevent them from fitting. And uh, I never realized the the power of magnesium back then until wow. years later when I was like, oh, right, yeah, I get it now. It, it works on the, <laughs> on, the, on the nervous system. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very powerful supplement, very powerful nutrient that a lot of people are deficient in. Um, yeah. Again, about 70% of the population. Wow. Which is the same, yeah, vitamin D also, and particularly in the bariatric community, they say about 70 to 80% of um, patients either go into surgery with vitamin D deficiency and then afterwards they're, they're quite a risk group as well. I also noticed on your website you've got uh, these plates that help people figure out their portions. How popular are they? Yeah. They are very popular and um, they're great. I think what I need to kind of communicate is that the first year after surgery is we prefer it to a bit of a honeymoon period where everything's motivating. We've got this new way of looking at the world. Um, We've got this great goal ahead of us and weight is, of course, falling off quite readily. Um, And we're not very hungry for the first time in quite a long time, I would imagine. So that time of Uh, that first year is also the time where it's really, really important for patients to set up fabulous habits that are going to last them for the rest of their lives. So the portion perfection range are designed to map out each meal for a bariatric patient and um, help them to get familiar with what a serving of food looks like. Um, And it's really good to do that whilst um, hunger isn't driving that association so that when um, after about the first year to 18 months a lot of patients report that hunger starts to return 
um, and then that can happen, but they're also really aware of what they're eating and that becomes quite key into maintaining their weight and preventing regain after that first couple of years. And how about shapewear? People, oh, yeah. post-bariatric shapewear, uh, tell me more. So we unexpectedly didn't realise how popular that was going to be, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Is that for and women, I, men and women? Yeah, we've got a range for men and for women and they are extremely popular. I think they're also really well priced on our site too. Um, but what we find is that as the weight does start to fall off, there's loose skin and that just gets in the way of exercise and comfort and wearing the clothes that you'd like to wear. So it just keeps things um, supported and tucked in Um if there is loose skin around and a lot of them talking about um, how much more comfortable it is to exercise whilst that's you know nicely supported and it's just easier to get around yeah do you know how many patients end up having plastic surgery post-bariatric for loose skin yeah it's a big topic I couldn't give you a statistic on how many actually do it um the results are quite incredible when you see the before and after photos of some people who've had, you know, the surgery or the gastric sleeve or bypass and then um, followed that through with the body lift and the tummy tuck and, the, you know, if they're women and they have their breasts um, augmented. It's just an incredible transformation. Um, it's a lot to go through. But I see that um, some for some people it's really the key to kind of getting back that active and um you know, their shape without having the loose skin left behind. So I don't know, to be honest, how many people actually have that done, um, but I do see that um, it is very widely talked about. And I wonder if it's price that's the prohibitor um, and just downtime and that sort of thing as well, but the results are fantastic. Yeah, I'm doing an up-and-coming uh, podcast episode with a colleague of mine who I went to uni with who is a plastic surgeon, and she d- does these operations post-bariatric. So oh, wow. that episode will be out in, I'd say, in a couple of months. So stay tuned, people. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. That. I, That'll be yeah. a really good one. That's a great subject to cover. There are a lot of questions in our groups about, you know, the community are discussing who they had their surgery with and what the outcomes were and what the downtime was and that sort of thing. One thing I will say about that is that nutritional um, sufficiency or the best health you can be in when you're having any kind of surgery um, will be the key to your recovery and um, things going well after that surgery as well. I have heard a few stories of very slow wound healing um, and if you think what it takes for the body to recover from a surgery like that, we need lots of um, collagen and vitamin C and all the B group needs to be on board to bring about that really healthy, um, you know, robust um, constitution to help that process take place. So do, your, do, do bariatric patients use your supplements before surgery as well? Some can do, and we do get that question asked quite a bit. Like there are, they are excited about finally being able to, you know, take this massive step into putting their best foot forward from a health perspective. Um, before surgery, um, for a month or two, it certainly wouldn't hurt anyone, I wouldn't think. Um, but again, it should be based on that patient's blood testing results to see that um, we're not kind of putting something in that's going to build up and cause problems. Um, but you will find that 
generally patients who are going into this surgery will have those um, key nutrients that are in our products that are quite deficient. So, and that's again, just due to malabsorption. You wouldn't think about a weight loss surgery um, prospect would be malnourished, but um, due to the kind of disruption in their microbiome and the inflammation that obesity presents with um, malabsorption is actually a risk factor as well because the digestive system is just not very happy. And you've got a uh, a podcast channel, don't you, that you I talk do more on all of this channel. stuff? Yeah, yeah tell us more about your podcast channel. Um, so that's my new baby, um, actually, and then we have a new website for that one. It's called the uh, Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast or awlspodcast.com. And, yeah, I've started a series of um, everything from what is bariatric surgery, where I interviewed uh, one of the surgeons on that one, and everything from what it is to what it does to what to expect. And then we're talking a lot about, and that's kind of where I really like to spend my time, is also exploring the psychological uh, transition that needs to take place to make that surgery successful. So a couple of my podcasts are, around I spent some time with Glenn McIntosh from the um, I never remember the name of the weight management psychology group uh, and he was the psychologist on The Biggest Loser and he also has an amazing practice in Brisbane that um, takes care of a lot of the weight loss surgery community as well from a psychological perspective. Um, so yeah we're just slowly exploring all different um, aspects of the surgery and um, the outcomes this week I'll interview one of our great successful patients and talk about his journey. Uh, and I've also talked to Lexi Crouch, who is an advocate for the Butterfly Foundation for Eating Disorders, mm. and we've talked about her journey through anorexia and bulimia and all the way to healing. So it's pretty exciting. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, some of your episodes with Glenn McIntosh were fantastic. <laughs> everyone loved his and we did it at the start of that kind of isolation period where everyone mm. was really the apple cart was totally set on its head so it was they were really well received and he did some work in our group as well and we we're always in close contact with his kind of community as well I think that's for me I think that is the key is making sure that patients really explore that psychological understanding of food and their relationship with that and then their relationships you know after surgery and that sort of thing also can change so it's good to be prepared. Yeah and psychological review should go hand in hand with review by a surgeon and a dietitian it should be a, a multidisciplinary team effort shouldn't it? Oh absolutely I mm. totally agree with that I think I always say you know there's 100 things that lead you to being in this you know morbidly obese state it's not just eat less and move more and I think just one you know it needs to be that really multifaceted approach to getting that um, every area should be uh, well explored and well supported after surgery for sure. Yeah I reached out to Glenn McIntosh uh, after someone was telling me about him I can't remember I'm not sure if it was you but mm. I then looked on his website then I sent him an email and connected with him and he sent me his Thin Sanity book Oh yeah, I love that book. We've yeah. got that on our website too. Yeah, it's a. He's just got a. Um, he's the most positive man you'll ever talk to. I he's think he's super too. happy, he's just, isn't he? Yeah, he's absolutely <laughs> delightful. <laughs> yeah, which is brilliant. Yeah. And how else may people connect with you, Jackie? At BM oh, Multi. 
they can find me at the weightlosssurgerypodcast.com or australianweightlosssurgerypodcast.com. On the BN Multi website, we have all of our contact details at www.bnmulti.com or direct email to support at bnmulti.com. We also have a great, fantastic uh, Facebook group called BN Bariatric, and that's the group I manage um, in that every week we have question time with me. So patients who've got questions or concerns or they're losing weight, they're not losing weight, or they're not hungry or they're whatever, they put the questions in the group at the top of the page and each week I answer those in a live um, event Mm. in the group every week. And that's been, they're all on the podcast website as well. So all the different questions that are quite prevalent in that kind of community are answered and accessible on the podcast website too. So could people join that group if they're thinking about bariatric surgery? Yeah, I think it's a good group to be in if you're thinking about it. Um, I see a lot of the other groups that have got lots of, um, it seems to be a bit of a dumping ground for, you know, the horror stories. Um, And I think they're quite few and far between uh, comparative to the people who really turn their lives around and find health for the first time. So I think in our group, because it's closely moderated and it's all um, evidence-based and I'm in there two or three times a day, we don't really get that um, negative kind of vibe coming through. Lots of education, lots of great recipes and the community are actually really interactive and they're, you know, very positive and I just think it's really fabulous little space. I'm really proud of it. Good on you for starting that. That's really Thank good. You. you mean two to three times a day to have to check that and uh, <laughs> that's a lot of work. So you're good on you. Yeah, thank you very much. I have a great team behind me too, so um, they make things look pretty beautiful and really all I do is produce the words and they come back looking like fabulous little posts with, you know, very intriguing um, things to have a look at. Yeah. Now more questions for you about you, Jackie Lewis. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favourite parts of my podcasting. Uh, It's it's actually, yeah, asking people questions about them. Uh, Which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Wow, that's one to have a look at. Um, I am a very wide reader. I think I really um, had to think about what I was bringing. So I guess... Oh, it's a tricky question you've asked me. I'm having to think a bit here. Um, so when I was in my mid-20s, I think I had this kind of moment where I wasn't terribly happy with the way things were going and I really needed to explore the psychological um, aspects of my world. Um, so that took me on my own kind of journey and I think a lot of the inspiration I've drawn for, um, you know, striving to be a better human um, a healthy human and a balanced human have all come from that kind of background for me. And I got a lot of that from reading maybe Wayne Dyer's work. Mm. Yeah, I loved his work. Um, I kind of went down the Hay House mm. pathway for a little while. Um, Stephanie Bowdish, she was something that um, I'm trying to think. I can't find her book on my shelf here. Intimacy and Solitude. Um, and also I read some work of Pia Melody. She did a lot of um, books on uh, codependence and addiction and all sorts of things. And I think that's where I draw my um, need to explore that psychological side of 
overeating and addiction and that sort of thing in our community. I think that's where I'm coming from with that, is that um, it's not talked about enough. So any specific people you've been inspired by? Wayne Dyer, so all these authors yeah. you've been inspired by these authors? Yeah, I think so. I've just kind of gone along the path. Dalai Lama was a bit of a favourite for a while because I just love his humour mm. and his um, humble kind of compassionate approach to life. I think um, he's got a lot to offer. Uh, and then, yeah, I think just an abundance of those, you know, you pick up one book and it leads you to another book that has that, you know, just another, I guess without sounding cliche, another um, round off the onion, another. Mm taking the, the layers off as you go along. Yeah. Yeah, Louise Hay of Hay House was pretty pretty amazing. And I was bummed because uh, I was meant to, I was planning to see Wayne Dyer with my sister oh. and then he passed away. Yeah, that was a sad day, wasn't it? Yeah. I saw um, Carolyn Mice, Mice, she spoke in Brisbane um, just before the COVID hit and I had lunch, did a lunch with her and that was pretty fascinating too. Um, so I draw a lot of that from the spiritual side, although I've found when I've, since I've done my degree, I'm a lot more black and white about things and I've kind of lost that connection somewhat. So it's something to explore again as well. And how about songs that make you happy? Ah, I love you too. I absolutely, like if anything, when I'm looking at listening to music and I can't think what to listen to, I'll just ask Google for more you too. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> I think it takes me back to my 20s when it was so easy and fun and there was no responsibility, was there? <laughs> yeah, I mentioned in a podcast that I did previously with a colleague of mine who, and he, his, his, his favourite group was U2. That mm. they, were my, they were my very first concert in 1989, oh, really? I think, yeah, at the um, Sydney Entertainment Centre. Oh, you never forget that. And mm. we saw them this year, February, I think mm. they were up here. And I hadn't listened to their music for ages and I turned up at the concert and I was like, you've just still got this. And Coldplay, I just love mm. him. He's, he's the same. He's just a great human who sings a few songs, you know. <laughs> Chris Martin. Yeah, yeah, I love him. And yeah, he's, he's pretty cool. Spunky. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he recently was on a Prince tribute uh, show singing a, tr a Prince song, and I thought, well, anyone who likes Prince is on my list of good people. Yeah, get that, and, and yes, get my tick of approval for that. Sure, <laughs> showing our age here. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Your dream collaboration? Do you have one? Um. Oh, and it may even come off because flukish. It it wasn't a dream, but it is now. So Sandra Cabot, the liver cleansing oh, doctor. Oh, yes, yes. She always worked just down in Double Bay, which I was in Vaucluse, mm. and I just really admired her work and I always used her liver tone tablets and just had a real connection to that. And a few of my massage patients used to see her and they were always blown away with what she did. And recently I wanted to um, stock her books on our website, so... I thought I would be sending off a generic email to a generic customer service girl who'd, you know, send us back a response. And I got this email back from Sandra Cabot and I was like, oh, my God, in my inbox. <laughs> so I thought it was a good opportunity to talk to her about what we were doing. And um, so we'll do some podcasts in the near future too. It's kind of been put on hold because of the COVID situation. But that was a bit of a moment for me where I was like, oh, I'm going to get to talk to Sandra Cabot in a professional kind of connection. It's pretty, um, yeah, it does feel like um, to be that I've come a long way in that regard and I'm pretty proud of that too. 
to be honest. It took me a long time to find my place with um, further education and really doing something that I'm completely passionate about. So I think, yeah, moments like this with you, Tash, and <laughs> um, Dr. Sandra Cabot, I think I'm doing all right. Uh, Sandra Cabot now, hey, I mean, I've got, I think yeah. I've got all of her books. <laughs> yeah. I love her books. They're so easy to read. They're nice and thin uh, yes. and easy to put in your bag. These are all the things that I take into account when I buy a book. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love her books and they're quite funny. There's one book that she's written about, I mean, women menopause, something to do with hormones and uh, uh, really quite funny as well yeah yeah no I think she's um she's been around for such a long time and to have and I love it that someone from the mainstream has really embraced the medicinal side of nutrition and Mm. has fully explored that and just has an amazing kind of support for um you know people in that field and it's just yeah we also feel quite recognized by that too which is great yeah her liver cleansing diet book was huge Mm. wasn't it 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 a bestseller yeah I reckon that was about 20 years ago mm. too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously she's got a few, I think, updates on that one. But um, Yeah, and there's also the gallbladder, heal mm. your gallbladder, whether you've got one or not, and that was also why I <laughs> All right. that book. Yeah, yeah, because people <laughs> so, who have gallbladder surgery have a lot of issues post-removal, don't they? Absolutely, and also a lot of patients will find that they have their gastric sleeve or bypass and then about six months later they need their gallbladder removed. So it's one oh. of those things that – um, just with the change in those, again, the gastric secretions and that sort of stuff, the gallbladder takes a real hit and processing all the, you know, junk from uh, the system with the, as the weight falls off. Yeah, so I think I'll have to is... have you back on the show for a gallbladder episode. <laughs> put that do down. Research. <laughs> let's talk gallbladders. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I ask, you, I, I could ask you now, but no, let's save it for another episode. Sounds great. <laughs> and my last question to you is, Top tips for keeping weight under control post-bariatric surgery as you see it? Um, Zip it. No, I'm joking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If only it was that easy, hey? I know. Wouldn't it be good? I think it's like I said before is portion control and getting a real understanding of what a plate of food looks like. When you look at the size of the portion plate, it's actually the size our dinner plates used to be in the 1950s. Um, So, even at home, if you're a weight loss surgery patient or not, um, I often eat my dinner off the side plate and it stops me filling that up, those big, beautiful, round, white plates. It stops me filling that with too much food. Um, so I think it's looking at we've just got this portion distortion, for want of a better word. Um, everywhere we go, we're told that bigger is better and would you like something else with that? And um we're, you know, introduced to these massive portions at restaurants and that sort of thing. And we really need to peel back to what is a serving. And I think once you've got that um, visual idea of that, it's something that your body will just fall into place with. Have you read the book Gastronomy? Excuse me, I'm sneezing. Um, no, I haven't actually. Who wrote that one, Tash? I can't remember, but it's a really big book and I took it with me to America when I went there for a, a trip a few years ago, but it was – it's such a great book, but it talks about um, the psychology of food. Mm. Even uh, and the reason why I bring it up is because you mentioned plate. And in that book, it talks about even the color of the plate, the size of the plate, the shape of the plate, uh, the pattern of color on a, on a plate will change how much people want to eat or eat. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I think white 
well, I have to maybe fact check this, but white, if people eat off a white plate, they're less likely to eat more. I'm right. have to check that one. But gastronomy. Yeah, I'll have to have a look into that. You're right. And you look at, you know, um, how clever our world of marketing and um, being sold to is, and they would do the research into what makes you eat more and encourage that because that sells food. Mm. So we have to outsmart all these you know, placement of products that are on the supermarket shelf in front of our eyes as opposed to what's down on the bottom shelf and really start to look at who's talking to me. Is it me making the decisions around my food or am I just being sold everywhere mm. I go? Am I just picking up, you know, what looks like I would want to eat it? Um, I always talk about labelling um, of any food and talk about marketing on the front and facts on the back. So encouraging patients to get really savvy about how to read a nutritional panel on a food so they know whether they say yes or no to it rather than, oh, you know, this one's even um, some of them that say real fruit juice. There only needs to be 2% juice in that product for them to say real fruit juice. So we have to be very careful about what we're doing. Yeah, that's a big one, reading labels. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to say a lot of a lot of doctors probably don't even know how to do that properly. No, I think you're right. I don't and remember I also, getting taught that at med school. Absolutely no, no way. No. No, not not nutrition. Mm. That's yeah, one thing I find is that also encouraging patients to get their nutritional information from someone who's doing nutrition. Um and yeah, looking at who works who do they need at some certain specific time? Um, do you need a nutritionist? Do you need your dietitian? Do you need your GP? Do you need your surgeon? Um, but looking at what specialty areas those people are trained in and really uh, making sure you're asking the right questions of the right professional as well. Yeah, because you can't know everything, can you? No, I'd like to think so, but no. And that's why resources are good and uh, knowing a lot about different people, what they do and what good books mm. and, and uh, articles there are out there to share. So thank you very yeah. much for sharing your knowledge today, Jackie. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful and, um, yeah, it's a great opportunity to share our message. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you. And gallbladder is calling you back. Gallbladder. Flag, <laughs> oh, flag that gallbladder. <laughs> See you later. Thanks, Bye. Lovely. Bye. Thanks. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Jackie Lewis and that it's been informative for you. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay Fanny Tabulous.